Father, we need your help in these moments. Father, we need you to speak to us by your spirit through your word. We desperately need to hear from you. There are so many voices in our culture and in our lives begging for our attention, begging for a hearing. But Father, we want to hear from you. Jesus, we want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we want to hear from you. You are the most important voice in our lives. And so help us now, please, please, Holy Spirit, to pay attention, to hear what you intended to write to the Colossians and by extension to us through your servant, Paul. And would we be helped in these moments? May we be gripped, may we be challenged, may we be pushed further than we've ever been pushed. May our thinking be aligned with reality where it's off. Father, would you help us to come more in line with the image of Christ? Transform us, change us. We need you. You certainly don't need us, but you graciously choose to give yourself to us as our help and as our rock. And you've given us your word to stand on. It is a a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Help us now in these moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to jump right in at Colossians 1, 21. And the first text we're going to go to is 21 to 23. Just reminding you, last week we did what is known as, by most scholars, a hymn. it's, It's a standalone, if you will, hymn about Jesus and his supremacy. A first century hymn. And some scholars think that Paul wrote it maybe prior to writing Colossians. Some scholars think Paul pulled it from uh, the ranks of the, the sacred writings in the first century circulating the church. And then he added to it to fit the, the heresy or the, the false teaching that was going on in the church in Colossians. But whatever the case, that text just prior to this, 15 to 20 is scripture, and it's one of the mountain peaks in all of the Bible to see Jesus in all his glory. And now Paul moves from Jesus and his glory and redeeming us to, and you, that would be the Colossians, by extension us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. You see, those who are alienated from God meaning they don't know Him, they're not full of His Holy Spirit, they're not regenerate, they're not born again, they don't know Him, they're estranged from Him, they're actually walking away from Him. So if you can imagine sin, darkness, selfishness going that way, and God, righteousness, holiness, heaven, the kingdom of God that way, we are alienated and moving away from God. Willfully and loving it. Like loving the world, loving our sin, loving ourselves and exalting ourselves. And to repent is a a Christian word in the Bible. It literally means to turn around and to go towards God. So not only is it a changing of the mind, but it's a changing of the direction of your life. You're going towards sin and you're in love with it. To have faith is to turn around and now go towards God. So faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have repentance without faith. That's why you see gospel invitations interchanged like that all through the New Testament. Some say repent and believe. Some say have faith. Well, faith and repentance are the same thing because you're turning around towards God and moving now towards Him. And I just want to add that you're not actually 
exercising genuine and real faith unless you have actually turned around and now you're actually moving towards God. But we, and, and the Colossians, were once alienated, and to be alienated is to be hostile in mind. Now, hostile in mind uh, can best be seen, I think, in another text that Paul wrote, Romans 8, 7 to 8. He says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh, flesh means the sinful part of you. So it can mean body, your, your bones, your skin, your blood, your veins, but it also means the sinful part of you, the part that's attracted to sin, the part that's bent towards evil and away from God. Paul says, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, God's standard, but wait, indeed it cannot. So not only will it will not, but it cannot. And then verse 8 of Romans 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, what does that look like? Doing evil deeds. Now, you could reverse that and say it like this. Continuously doing evil deeds without repentance and faith could mean you are alienated and still hostile to God in mind. Did you catch that? So if you're continuously one that finds yourself engulfed in evil and enjoying it, you may not be who you think you are. You may actually be one who is alienated and hostile in mind. And if that is where you're living, then you cannot please God. It's not that you will not. You cannot. And listen, my, my exhortation in love is to turn, please, turn away from sin. It's killing you slowly. It's making you miserable. And turn to God. Please. He... Jesus, who was just spoken of in the prior section, he has now reconciled us. So you were, but now you're reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, let's, let's visit this mindset one more time so that this verse 22 comes to greater light. You ready? Doug Moo, talking about mindset, says this. It is a total life direction total life direction. Remember? Going this way. That is innately hostile to God. All people by nature derived from Adam are incurably bent toward their own good rather than the good of others or of God. The various sins to which we are attracted, desire for riches, station in life, power, sexual pleasure, are but different symptoms of this same sickness, this idolatrous bent towards self-gratification. So what, what is it to be hostile in mind? It's to have this idolatrous bent towards you. Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, would say it's the self-curved inward. It's the essence of sin. It's all about me. And that's the air we breathe. The, the culture of America right now is it's all about you. And man, if there's a little left over, then you can give yourself to someone else. Your time, your talent, your treasure. You could give a little bit of time to God. But listen, we are getting bombarded by advertisement and by, I mean, just the outward bombardment is insane to be selfish. And Doug Moo says that's the essence of being uh, hostile in mind. It's this inward bent towards self. 
which is not going towards others, it's going towards self. So imagine all your energies coming out from you, boomeranging back and coming right back to you. Words, actions, money, just your whole self, all of you just boomerang, me, it's all about me, every day, every moment of every day. That is idolatrous self-worship. That is, that's what it is to be hostile in mind. And listen, I think our lives tell on us, not our words. James would say in his book that those who say I have faith, yet have no works, can that faith save you? And the answer is no. So it's a faith that is proved by your works. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh. Now flesh in this sense, Jesus is his body by his death. In order, what will it do? What will it accomplish? To present you and I and the Colossians blameless and above reproach before him. The good news is though we were idolatrously bent on ourselves, bent inward, we have been reconciled and redeemed and pulled out of ourselves. The possibility that exists for you and for me is that we can be, in the words of Tim Keller, gloriously self-forgetful. Gloriously self-forgetful. To say, you know what, this isn't all about me. This life that I've been given is about others. This life I've been given is about God. And all my energies can move out from me to others. God first, others second. Fulfilling the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is looking forward to the day when every person will stand before the judgment seat of God. You see, we're going to be presented before the judgment seat of God. You see here in verse 22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One day you, every one of you, and me are going to stand before the creator and sustainer of the universe and we're going to give an account for our lives. Every thought, every word, every deed, every motive. And that is kind of terrifying. Uh, Romans 14, 10 says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. But yet, because of Jesus, our debt can be canceled and we can stand before him holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Why? Because Jesus is holy, blameless, and above reproach. And he gives us that as a gift. It's called imputation. Big theological word which simply means to credit in place of another. To credit in place of another. You get the perfection of Jesus as if you lived it. You get Jesus' holiness as if you're holy. You get Jesus' blamelessness as if you were blameless. You get Jesus' above reproachness as if you were above reproach. And standing before him, it's as if you're perfect. Now listen, the beautiful thing about the gospel is once you've received the gift of God, right? John tells us in John chapter 1, to those who received him, what does it mean? To believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of flesh or a husband's will or, or the will of man, but born of God. Born again. New creatures in Christ. The idea is you are now this. You are now holy, blameless, and above reproach. And listen, we need to become what God says we already are. So we're down here as far as living this out goes, and we need to get to where we are already. See, that's gospel. Gospel is, it's not one day you need to be holy, one day you need to be above reproach, one day you need to be blameless. You already are that, now become what you are. Become what you already are, because when God says you're this, it's a reality, and now we have to catch up. No Heinz. Okay? 
catch up, no hinds. 23, if indeed, now this is a, a, an if. When you see an if, it's, this may not happen for you. So if this is going to happen, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, that could be translated to every creature, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay? The idea here is if we continue in the faith, that means we don't, to use the theological word, apostate. We don't leave Jesus. We don't go after more news other than the good news. And this is what the Colossians were being tempted to do. False teaching had come into the church and it was promising a Jesus plus or a more than Jesus or you could have fullness. Yes, Jesus is good, but you need this too. We can mediate between angels and we can talk to them and they can give you fullness. And if you will just keep these Jewish days, it's next week's sermon, if you'll just keep these calendar days, you will be more full. There's fullness outside of Christ is what the false teaching was. And Paul is saying to these Colossians, don't leave from what you first believed. Look, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's past. You heard this already from Epaphras. You remember in uh, the first sermon in Colossians, Epaphras was the church planter who heard the gospel under Paul's teaching in Ephesus, Hall of Tyrannus, preaching, preaching. Epaphras becomes a believer, and he himself is a Colossian, and he goes east to Colossae, and he begins to evangelize his own people, and a church is planted, and they believe Epaphras' gospel, which was Paul's gospel, and now they're being tempted, like the Galatians, to move away from that gospel to something else. And Paul's saying, if indeed you continue in the faith, that goes for us too, guys. Listen, we cannot move away from the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We have Christ and we cannot move away from Him, guys. He is our righteousness. He is our substitute. And this is what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. Now, this is good news. John 10 clearly explains this. Jesus is talking to a crowd of hostile um, Pharisees and Sadducees. They're always arguing with him. They've previously just called him uh, a, a demonic power sorcerer, right? You do what you do by the power of Satan. And Jesus says this, you're not my sheep. And in John 10, 27 to 30, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So one characteristic of you being a sheep of Jesus, he being the chief shepherd, you being his sheep, is that you hear his voice. When you hear teaching that is in line with the spirit of Jesus, you say yes and amen. Something in you, someone in you, says yes, confirmation, thumbs up. They hear my voice. I know them. I know them. John 17, 3, Jesus is praying to his heavenly father and Jesus prays this. This is eternal life, that they, my sheep, know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. But it's not just that we know God, it's that he knows us. He says, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And listen, no one can snatch them out of my hand. I mean, that's security, the grip of God. I mean, who is stronger to God to pry his fingers off of you once he has you? No one. Once you're in the grip of God, 
You're in the grip of God. That's good news. And he follows by saying, my Father who has given them to me, we are a gift from the Father to the Son, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is called the perseverance of the saints. This means that once you come to Christ and you've believed and you're born again, you've received Him, you've believed in His name, you've turned around, and now you're heading towards God, He's got His grip on you and He's never going to let you go. That's good news. But the way that we're often warned in the Scriptures is this way. So Paul is saying to these Colossians, we'll know that you're Jesus' sheep if, if indeed you continue in the faith. That's how we know. How can we tell the sheep from the goats? Will you persevere? Friends, I have seen many, I've been a Christian for about 20 years now, and I have sadly seen many leave the faith who were fiery, we would say on fire Christians, evangelizing, witnessing, apologists, memorizers. I am no longer in this camp. I do not believe Jesus is God, nor is the Bible true. And I've even heard one of them go so far as to say the God of the Bible is the Yahweh monster. Yet at one time believing, but never one of Jesus' sheep. Did he lose his salvation? No, he never had it. He was never one of Jesus' sheep. Because if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed already, and in all of creation, under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, Paul's not saying that Spain has heard the gospel. He's not saying that like China has heard the gospel or Australia yet. He's saying in the Roman Empire, of which I have made my travels, the gospel has been preached. And churches have been established. And now that churches have been established in these main city centers, the, the gospel will spread from there. Paul says the gospel has been preached and proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's the good news to you. If, if you will hold on to the gospel, God will hold on to you. But the reality is God is holding on to you and you're not holding on to him. Right? Because if you're his sheep, no one can snatch you out of his hand, not even yourself. It's good news, guys. So where's the assurance come from? The assurance comes from you continuing to trust. You continuing day by day to say, Jesus, you're my only hope. Your assurance comes from not moving away from the gospel and you can see some evidence that your life is changing. Maybe so slowly that you can't perceive it, but you can look back five years, two years, a year and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not the same person I was. I think differently. I act differently. I actually love a little more. It's amazing. I wish it was faster, but it's happening. God's Spirit is inside of me, transforming. He's making me become what I already am, holy, blameless, above reproach. Okay, we're going to go to the next text. We're going to look at 24 to 29. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This verse 24 of Colossians 1 is one of the, if not the most difficult text in the entire four chapters of this letter. So let me read it again. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
Paul is in prison right now. It's Acts 28. He's in Rome. He's under house arrest. People are allowed to come visit him. He's allowed to write letters. He's allowed to receive people. That's the suffering he's talking about right now. And he says, and in my flesh, he's not talking about the sinful flesh now. He's talking about his body. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What? What could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? You see, what Paul is not saying here is that Christ didn't make full atonement on the cross. So when Jesus said, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit, it wasn't really finished. Paul needed to finish it by his sufferings, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. He's saying that I know that this world, those who are not connected to Christ, absolutely hate him. They're hostile in mind. Their mindset is hostility towards God. And because they can't get at God, who can they get at? Christians. Paul. So the hatred for Jesus was directed now at Paul. And in the the spiritual realm, right, Ephesians 6 clearly tells us that your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this dark world, the evil forces in the heavenly realms. There is a massive hatred for God. And it flows through people. And Paul says that hatred that cannot be directed to Jesus because he's now ascended on high, he's untouchable, is now directed at Jesus' people. Demonic people coming against Christians. Um, John MacArthur says it like this, Paul was experiencing the persecution intended for Christ. In spite of his death on the cross, Christ's enemies had not gotten their fill of inflicting injury on him. So they turned their hatred on those who preached the gospel. It was in that sense that Paul filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. So in Acts chapter 9, you remember Paul is breathing murderous hatred towards Christians. And Jesus shows up and he says this to him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When Paul was persecuting Christians, Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7 in particular, Jesus was so identifying with his people that Jesus was being persecuted. Now it's the reverse. Jesus so identifies with Paul that when Paul is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. And in one sense now, when Paul is persecuted, Christ is persecuted. It's called union with Christ. Union. Here's Doug Moo. What is lacking then, needing to be filled up, are the tribulations that are inevitable and necessary as God's kingdom faces opposition of the demonic or the dominion of darkness. As members of Christ's own body, his people participate in the sufferings of Christ himself. Because Paul's apostolic ministry is an extension of Christ's work in the world, Paul identifies his own sufferings very closely with Christ's. These sufferings have no redemptive benefit for the church, but they are the inevitable accompaniment of Paul's commission to proclaim the end-time revelation of God's mystery. That's the next three verses. We'll get to them. In this way... In this way, Paul's sufferings are on behalf of the church, including the Colossian Christians. And of course, as a prisoner for the gospel, Paul is suffering for them even as he writes, as members of the fellowship of those raised with Christ 
and forming, therefore, part of Christ's body, we also are the beneficiaries of Paul's suffering. So Paul says he rejoices for their benefit because he is filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. The body is the church, the universal church. We are an extension of that universal church, the local church. That is the church, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, Paul's here commission, as we just heard, was in Acts 9. But in Acts 9.15, Paul um, is going to be prayed for by a man named Ananias. You remember the story, don't you? Ananias is praying. He sees a vision of Jesus. And he says, hey, there's a guy named Saul of Tarsus. You've heard of him. I want you to go pray for him. He is waiting for a man named Ananias to come and pray for him. Oh, Lord, I can't. He, he's been locking people up and, and having them executed. And, and he says this. Jesus says this to Ananias. He says, Ananias is afraid to go in and pray for Paul. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. So Jesus has commissioned Paul to stand before kings and Gentiles and rulers and preach the gospel, but he's also commissioned him to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. It was his commission to suffer. And he's saying that there, then and there, he became a minister according to the stewardship from God. This stewardship, stewardship is the idea of you being over someone's house. So like Joseph in the place of Pharaoh, he had um, stewardship over all of Egypt. None was greater than Joseph except Pharaoh. He was a steward. In the same way, Paul's saying, I am a steward, and I've give, been given this gift of good news and revelation from God. It was given to me, and it's for you. You're receiving it right now through the letter. To make the Word of God fully known. To talk about Jesus in such a way that people are saved. In fact, we know that's what it means because look at 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Paul says there's a mystery, not an unknowable mystery, like we can't figure this out, but something hidden in ages past and now coming to light by God's will. Now this is the time for this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now it's being revealed. What's the mystery, Paul? Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the mystery. Not only would God become a man, the creator become his creation, but God would come to live inside his people as if they were the temple. Right? Jesus, standing in the temple, says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they were thinking he was talking about the physical temple where the sacrifices were made, but yet he was talking about his body. But now, the temple is where the sacrifices were made. Now that Jesus has taken over as the temple, he was the sacrifice, he was the priest, he was on the altar. Now, we, friends, are the place where God resides. 
The temple has been destroyed in 70 AD. The sacrifices are done. Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system. But listen, now God comes to dwell with us, in us. So before you had to go to the temple to meet God and to be with him in his presence. And at that, only once a year, the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement. But now, friends, you have God's presence with you every day. You are now the temple. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are a temple from the Holy, of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. This mystery has been hidden, but now, Paul says, it's being revealed. This is 2,000 years ago. It's that God's people now have God living in them. It's, it's amazing. Him we proclaim, Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this. You ready? This is after the massive declaration that God, before the ages began, chose a people for himself. And here's where we come in. In him, Jesus, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, it's another way of exercising faith. It's another way of saying you repented. When you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It was like a leather letter was sealed in wax with a stamp. Sealed. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glorious grace. The Holy Spirit is you, all of you friends, my guarantee that we will possess heaven. We will possess eternal life. We will be free from sin. We will walk in glory every day. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee for that. Now, this mystery of the Holy Spirit in us, Paul uses this language in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, our, our hope for future glory of God's kingdom and physical rule on this earth made new is found only in Jesus when we believe. And this 28, him we proclaim, Jesus, warning everyone. There is uh, warnings to be had, friends. Why warnings? Because listen, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we fail to warn people that there is a judgment to come, like how much do we love people? Now I'm not saying we go out and just pound people recklessly and rudely and like, you know, you don't wake up your wife or your husband by taking cold water and filling it with ice and waiting for the alarm. You're like, about three seconds, one, two, you know, waking up, what in the, you don't, you don't do that, why? Because you love them. In the same way, you don't throw judgment in someone's face like ice and water to wake them up, okay? You gotta find ways in the wisdom of God to show people in love that there is a judgment to come. Here would be one way. You could bring up Romans 2, four to six. Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance of God and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
Do you know that? That the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. You could say, God has been so kind to you. He's been so good to you. Look at your life. And yes, there's hard times. Yes, there's bad things. Yes, there's troubles and trials and sufferings. But he's been so good to you. And don't you know that that goodness is meant to lead you to repentance? But, he goes on to say, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. So, the day of wrath is coming. And when we refuse to come to Christ and we continue to walk in evil and selfishness and self-gratification, it's like we're storing up wrath for ourselves. We have a book bag on, and we're just taking wrath, and we're, we're collecting, 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 storing it up, and one day, it's going to crush us. Unless Jesus got crushed by the wrath in your place. Listen, you're going to get crushed by it, or Jesus gets crushed by it. Those are your options, friends. And I love you, and you need to, to say, Jesus, please be crushed in my place. Because the wrath is coming and judgment is coming. But listen, Paul says we warn everyone. How? Teaching everyone with all wisdom. I think the all wisdom there means you've got to know how to present the gospel to different people. We're not called to just scream on people all day, every day. Like we're crazy people. You know, Eddie did a five-part evangelistic message about a month ago. I would, I would recommend that message to you. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul is saying that as we warn people, the goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. We want people to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Paul knows uh, about depending on God's strength and not his own. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, go to 29 now. For this I toil. What is he toiling for? He's toiling to present everyone mature in Christ. How's he doing it? He's warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He says, for this I toil, present everyone mature in Christ, struggling, it's a struggle, it's work, it's sweat, it's energy. I'm tired with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Friends, how are we going to do this? We need to depend on God's energy and not our own. That's how. It's the only way. We have a card on the back table. This was our memory prayer for the summer, and it's Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And on the back, it's in prayer form. And I want to highlight one little piece of this. He says, Father, this is in prayer form that we did this for you. Father, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant me to be strengthened with power through your spirit in my inner being so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. How are we going to effectively make disciples? We need the power of God. We can't go out on our own strength. We will fail and we'll be exhausted. Jesus said it in John 15. Uh, he said, without me, you can do nothing. Let's move on to the next text very quickly. Um, we're going to be now in 2, 1 to 5. I told you we're going to be moving fast. This is going to be dense. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that's the Colossians, and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, before we pull the map up in one second here, I want you to see that he has not met these Colossians. He has never seen them. He's not met them face to face. He's not met the Laodiceans. And he wants to meet all these Christians. He has a hunger and a desire to know those to whom he's writing. All right, now check out this map. We're going to look at Laodicea real quick. So Colossae, so this is the Roman world. Look, there's Italy there, the boots, and there's Rome. So over here is Ephesus. And then to the east, right here, this red dot, that's Colossae. Okay? And what Paul wants 
is he wants the Laodiceans, which is right there, he wants to meet them, and he wants to meet the Colossians. He has a desire to meet them and to know them face by face, or face to face, I'm sorry. And interestingly, later in the letter, Colossians 4.16, he says this, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. It's one of the lost letters of Paul. We know there's one in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's lost. We have no idea where it is. There's also a letter to the Laodiceans, the church there, that we don't, maybe it'll turn up someday. You know, it won't be scripture. It's canonized already, but who knows? Maybe archaeology will turn up this lost letter to Paul. All right, so now you can see where's Colossae and where's Laodicea. Here's Ephesus. Epaphras is saved. He's a Colossian. He goes over to Colossae. And now Paul is concerned for these two cities and two churches. All right, let's go back to the text. Paul says, I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. What's the struggle? That their hearts may be encouraged. He, he wants to see them so that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. And, and he wants this. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of wisdom and knowledge. What Paul wants is he wants these Christians, the Laodicean Christians, the Colossian Christians, he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love. Think of knitting, like you're taking yarn and any knitters in the house? I'm not a knitter. Yeah, you're a knitter? Sweet. You're a knitter? No, you're not a knitter. You're just being funny, my man. So knit together, is you're taking yarn and you're like literally fusing it together to make a blanket or a pot holder or like a little hat maybe. Yeah, a little hat, cool. Uh, and, and the idea is these Christians are being knit together in love. They're being fused together in relationship. Friends, do you know that kind of Christian relationship? Does that freak you out? That you would be weaved together like yarn with other people who aren't your husband, wife, Brothers, sisters, families, that freak you out a little bit? Because that's what he's praying for. That's what he's struggling towards. That's what we actually want to see here. So if that freaks you out, I love you. We want you to stay until that doesn't freak you out anymore. Okay? But we want you to be knit together in such a way where you're like, man, this hat, I can't pull this string out from these other strings because you're knit together. You're so tied in with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ that when Jamal back there is hurting, I'm hurting. And when I'm hurting, Eddie is hurting. Because we're like a one. We're a body. So, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, he's saying to these Colossians, there is fullness and there's understanding and the mystery that you're seeking in this false teaching that you're being attracted towards, listen, it's found in Christ. And he wants them to come to this assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That's what he wants. He doesn't want them going away from Jesus and the gospel. There's nothing else outside of Jesus. Okay? That's what he wants for them. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this, 
this wisdom and knowledge here, I, I've been living in 1 Kings for a little bit, and you know what happens in 1 Kings. David dies, and then in chapter 3, his son Solomon comes to the throne, and he's young, and he's afraid. And in verse 9 of chapter 3, God shows up in such a way where he says, ask what you will. Ask whatever you want. And I think it was Julius Kim who said, this makes Aladdin's lamp pale in comparison. This is the creator and sustainer and owner of the universe saying, ask what you will. And here's what Solomon asks for. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to, able to govern this, your great people? And God answers in 12. He says, Behold, now I do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has, has been before and none like you shall arise after you. It's amazing. And then you go and you read the account of Solomon's life and it, it's, it's amazing. Okay? But Jesus shows up, friends. And to an antagonistic crowd, he says, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Me. Because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to go to Aristotle and Socrates. You don't need to go there. You can. You're free to. Like, they're deep. Okay. But listen, you can go to Christ who created them and gave them their mind. Are you seeking wisdom and understanding and fullness in Christ or are you going every other place? James tells us in 1.17 that all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of heavenly lights. All good and perfect gifts. The wisdom. If you seek wisdom, seek Christ. He will give it to you. James 1.5 says if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask and he'll give generously without finding fault. Friends, we need to seek wisdom, but we need to seek it in Christ. We need to seek understanding, but we need to seek it in Christ. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So yeah, the arguments sound good that you're receiving from these false teachers, but I'm telling you that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I don't want you to be deluded with plausible arguments. It's lesser. Verse 5, for though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. So, you remember um, at the end of, uh, what was it, Star Wars 6? Um, you know, they're around the fire and, and there's the transparent Obi-Wan and transparent Yoda. You remember that? Was that the end of 6? Help me out, Star Wars fans. No? Which one was it? End of which one? You know Star Wars fans in the house? Which one? Five? All right, someone Google that, but not now, not yet. <laughs> Pay attention. I think it is the end of six, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Pete. So the idea is not that Paul is, is like in the, in the corner in like Yoda form, like spiritual, transparent Paul, like there he is in the back, look. They're reading the letter. I am with you in spirit. And they look around, they're like, oh my gosh. He's with us in spirit. Look, you could throw a water bottle through him. You know, that's not the idea. The idea is that he is with them 
fully, totally, his emotions, his, his being, he wants them to succeed. He's struggling for them in verse uh, 1 here of chapter 2. He says, I am with you in spirit. And he's rejoicing, what? To see your good order. He wants them to have a good order in the church, and he wants to see their firmness of faith in Christ. He doesn't want them to leave Christ. Okay, let's go to the last section now, and I'm going to move way fast, and we're done. Colossians 2, 6 to 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So upon hearing the gospel from Epaphras previously, they believed. And now He's saying, walk in Him. Live according to the truth that you received. It's not just receiving a truth. It's not just receiving a doctrine. It's not just receiving news. It's walking out this newness of life. Verse 7, rooted and built up in Him, in Jesus, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, past tense, abounding in thanksgiving. Listen, this firm faith creates a thankful heart, a thankful disposition, uh, where you learn to be rooted and built up in Christ. So listen, here's the question. Do you have an abundance of thanksgiving in your life? Christians should be the most thankful people on the planet. We should not be the most complaining people on the planet. Because listen, our future is incredibly bright and even if it's all darkness surrounding you right now where you can't even see five feet in front of you, you know by faith because of Jesus that your future is bright. And if you will practice, listen friends, if you will practice thankfulness, you will find multiple hundreds of things to be thankful for every single day. Every day. Will you practice? That's the question. Or will you go the way of all natural people and just find stuff to complain about? That's easy. It takes hard work to be thankful. It really does. Okay, we need to have thankful hearts. Oh God, please make us thankful. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive, literally robs you, plunders you, steals from you. You mean steal the car, steal my wallet? No, he doesn't mean that. What he means is by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, philosophy in this culture is different than our philosophy. You, know, you take philosophy in college and you read philosophy books and you enjoy that. What this means, philosophy is a general term to mean all kinds of teachings. It's an umbrella term. It doesn't specifically mean the Greek philosophy of, uh, of the Athenians. It means junk drawer, all kinds of teaching. And they are being deceived, or the, the, the teachers are trying to deceive them. And Paul says it's empty. It's empty deceit. There's nothing in it. It's an it's a empty bottle of water, and you're thirsty. Don't drink it. There's nothing in there. According to human tradition. So this is all human tradition. This is not spiritual. And then he says this. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now elemental spirits here. Paul is speaking of the pagan tradition of finding spiritual forces behind the elements of nature and the heavenly bodies. So in the ancient culture, there was a, a belief that there was spirits behind all the elements, earth, wind, fire, water, the, the moon, the sun, the stars, the spiritual world. Eddie, you just thought of earth, wind, and fire, didn't you? I know you did. I saw it. He started jamming. He's singing over there. Sing for us? No? All right. The elemental spirits. He, he's saying you used to be in this pagan place and believing that 
the spirit world controlled the natural world. And what he's saying is Jesus created the spiritual world and the natural world, and he rules over them both. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't let them take you with empty deceit. There's nothing there. Don't let, you, don't let them take you with their philosophy. There's nothing there according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And then he says where there is wholeness. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to come to substance? You want to come to life? You want to come to creator and sustainer of the universe? The deity, capital D, dwells in Jesus in bodily form the creator and sustainer, become man. Leaven. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by, by the putting off of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now this is a circumcision made without hands. Old Testament, this was the symbol that you were the people of God made in your flesh for males. New Testament, this is a sign of rebirth. This is a sign that you are born again. It's the cutting away of your old sinful you, and now you are anew. You're new in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. How do we know that's what he's talking about? Because of the next verse, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now, baptism is a real thing that we do. It's an outward, visible, we, we as this uh, Eternal City Church practice immersion baptism, so we will put you under the water and you come up out of the water. The word baptizo means to dip, to dunk, to immerse, and that's what we practice. Okay, But this verse right here is not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the spiritual reality of you being baptized in Christ. So let me read it. Having been buried with Him, united with Jesus in His burial... In baptism, you went under with him into the earth, or in the earth, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power of uh, work. Uh, sorry, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So as Christ went under the ground, even though he went into a cave and the stone was rolled over, the picture is burial, you were with him. You died when Christ died. The old sinful you died with Christ, praise God. And when Christ came up out of the grave, so you too come up new, newness of life, the old you dead, the old sinful you buried, never to be resurrected again. But a new you has come up. And if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We symbolize that by saying, if anyone's in Christ, under the water, baptism, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, dead to sin, coming up out of the water, alive in Christ. It's a symbol of union with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection. We have a baptism coming up. If you have not been baptized, friends, and you are a Christian, you would say, I believe in Jesus. I want to escape the wrath to come. I want his life for my life, his death for my death. You need to be baptized. It's the very first act of faith after belief. It was such a, a, a synonymous part of faith in the New Testament that it was often said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. It was like, as soon as you exercise faith, be baptized. Okay, so we're doing a baptism. If you've never been baptized, please come to me. We need to talk, and we will arrange for you to be baptized. Okay, we're going to be doing that very soon. More details 
to come. By canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. Everything is being recorded, and I would say it like this. You know how your brain uh, is said by neurologists uh, to remember everything you see and say and think? It's all being stored in your memory. Could it be that God is, you know, like Bluetooth transmits uh, your, your music into the Bluetooth speaker? Could it be that all of your thoughts that record all of your motives and all of your deeds, everything you see, is being transmitted to the books of God? Recorded. Right? Because in Revelation 20, it says, the books were opened and the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. But the idea is this record of our wrongs when we're in Christ is canceled. He cancels the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now you remember that the Jesus is, is on the cross and there's a sign above his head. What did it say? No one knows? king of the Jews. And, the, and, the, and the, the Jews who put him up there were mad and they were like, no, no, no. He said he was the king of the Jews. He's not the king of the Jews. Well, in the same way, your record is hanging above your head, friends. But in Christ, your record was hanging above his head on the cross. And your sin is put on him as he's dying on the cross. MacArthur notes that the list of crimes of a crucified criminal were nailed to the cross with that criminal to declare the violations he was being punished for. Believers' sins were all put to Christ's account, nailed to his cross, and he paid the penalty in their place for them, thus satisfying the just wrath of God against crimes requiring punishment in full. Friends, he disarmed, verse 15, the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now the rulers and authorities in this last verse here are the, the demonic powers that were involved in the death of Jesus. Satan enters Judas and Judas betrays Jesus and you can just see them invisibly inspiring the crowd. Crucify him, crucify him and they're triumphing. They're, we have won and all of a sudden by death Jesus defeats death. And by suffering and dying he conquers suffering and dying so that we might live. Friends, we're going to celebrate that reality right now by taking communion together. We take communion every week here as Eternal City Church. We do that because Jesus is the center of our faith. He's obviously the center of this letter, but he's the center of our faith. And his death on the cross was for your trespasses, for my trespasses so that they no longer stand against us. Canceled, debt canceled, absorbed in Jesus. He paid our debt by his own blood.